We come this morning to our next to last message in the book of Acts that we have been going through these many months. If you have your Bible this morning, you can flip almost to the end to Acts chapter 27, and we will pick up the final chapter, chapter 28, next week. This is in our series through the book of Acts that I've entitled, The Power to Change the World. Uh, The title of our sermon this morning is simply Shipwreck, and maybe this is a story that you are familiar with, a story in which Paul will be a part of a real-life shipwreck. Uh, When I think shipwreck, I think of one of my favorite movies, one of my favorite Disney movies of all time, Swiss Family Robinson. Anybody seen Swiss Family Robinson? Yep. Good stuff. Um, in, in perfect old school Disney fashion, they can take a situation where a family gets into a massive storm in a boat, their lives are threatened, somehow they survive and they're stuck on this island and it becomes a magical moment in which animals can ride in buckets to the seashore and you can have races on top of various wild animals, fall in love, sing about Christmas trees, fight pirates, save the day and all live happily ever after in the most amazing tree fort you've ever seen in your life. Uh, slightly different here with Paul, but nonetheless, we do see uh, things come together, but for a very different reason, because God is good to his people, even in these moments of shipwreck. And, and what we see here in this passage that we'll, we'll read here in just a moment is that uh, the reality for believers is that we face very often moments that feel uh, like a storm or feel like a shipwreck, things that we didn't plan for, things that we didn't want to happen, hard moments in our life. And as we see Paul literally go through this scenario, there is much that we can apply to our own lives as we trust in faith the God who is good in all circumstances. So let me begin here by reading to us. This is Acts chapter 27. I'm going to read the first half essentially of this chapter to get us started, which is verses 1 through 20 that kind of leads us up to the wreck. The Bible says this, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. In putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. 
But soon, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's take a minute and let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We submit to it. We thank you for every word, every jot and tittle and syllable. And Lord, may we apply these realities of this story that Paul faced uh, in his life to our own lives, even as we look in hope and in faith to you, King Jesus. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Two ways this morning that we overcome the storms of life by looking to the Lord of the storm. Number one from verses one through 20 that we've just read is this. We need to uh, accept and, and grasp the reality that following Christ will bring storms. Following Christ will bring storms. Uh, Paul in his lifetime, not just here on the boat, but Paul in his lifetime has experienced some pretty major storms long before this shipwreck. Uh, Paul at this point in his life has just completed his three missionary journeys, which we know went from 46 to 57 AD. So 11 years of traveling, doing missions. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul wrote as a letter to the church at Corinth, he kind of highlights some of what it's been like over those last 11 years of following Jesus and sharing the good news of the gospel. Listen to some of these highlights from Paul. Imprisonments, beatings, five times the 40 lashes minus one, three times beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys in danger from rivers, from robbers, from my own people, from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, plus all of my worry for all the churches. Let's go on a missions trip. <clears throat> Following Jesus leads to storms in your life. Do not be unclear about that reality. But Jesus has given us many words to help us understand that reality. One in particular that's important is John 16, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. But what? Take heart, for I have overcome the world. Like we said last week, Jesus has already won. Here now, in, in Paul's life, he is boarding a ship to go to Rome in Italy. We know that this, uh, this travel took between 59 and 60 AD. Why is he going? He is specifically going because he has just been unjustly put on trial three times in a row simply for sharing the gospel. 
You can read the entirety of those stories in Acts 24 through 26. He is on trial before a man named Festus and then Felix and then King Agrippa. And by the third of those trials, Paul voluntarily appeals to Caesar himself in Rome, which he could do as a Roman citizen and says, I want a trial in Rome. He did not make that request because he thought Caesar was such a great and just and merciful man. He made that request because he wanted the gospel to get to the capital of the known world at the time, which was the city of Rome. And so Paul chooses to put himself in harm's way, chooses to put himself in the situation of injustice, chooses a situation which he is well aware will most likely cost him his life in order to lead others to Christ. And because he can see clearly that the promises of heaven are far better than the promises of this world. What compels you? What is it that when you wake up in the morning, you say, this is what is worth spending my days, my hours, and my years here on earth doing? For Paul, it was one thing. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul finds himself not just in a a theoretical storm. He finds himself in a literal storm and an impending shipwreck, so it would seem, again, for the sake of the gospel. Uh, The last time I was offshore was with uh, Pastor Jerry from Covenant Church, and we were however many miles offshore, and I'm looking at this beautiful sunset as we're coming back in, and I almost lost it in the incredibly difficult, you know, three-foot waves coming in on this modern 27-foot state-of-the-art fishing boat. I cannot imagine what it was like for Paul to be on this ship and realizing that most likely they were going to (laughs) die. Um... R. Kent Hughes says specifically what we know about these types of ships that he would have been on. It says the typical grain freighter was 140 feet long, 36 feet wide. It was a sturdy ship, but in high seas, it had definite disadvantages. It had no rudder. That seems like a problem. It had no rudder like a modern ship, but was steered by two great paddles extending from the stern, which I would assume were fairly useless in a storm. It had only one mast, and it could not sail into the wind, which is exactly what they're trying to do. Check out the map behind me. You can sort of see what the ultimate journey looks like and where they're going. They're going across the the Mediterranean. Luke specifically tells us that they began their journey right over pass, or Passover, which would put them in late October, and apparently it is dangerous to travel the Mediterranean in this sort of a boat as fall and winter is coming on. Uh, I personally have a minimal amount of experience with fall, late October uh, in the Mediterranean. I have lots of experience with late October weather in Florida, though. Uh, October 26, 2012 is the 10-year anniversary not only of Tropical Storm Katrina coming through Brevard County, but also of Alana and I's wedding outside (laughs) Sandy. I said Katrina. See, who was I talking about Katrina earlier? We're talking about Katrina. Sandy. Katrina did not hit here. Sandy came through uh, at the same time that Alana and I were getting married outside uh, on October 26, 2012. I'm sure it was way worse, though, than anything that Paul ever experienced. Um, The wise thing for these guys to do would have been to dock their boat until the spring, but the sailors uh, did not want to stay in the Holiday Inn Express that was there in Fairhaven, and so they said, okay, we're going to continue onward, hoping to make it to Phoenix. Um, Even the preacher guy, Paul, says to the captain, you know, you probably shouldn't do this. Um, But the Bible uses an interesting word. It says they decided to take the chance. 
They decided to take the chance and see if they could make it to Phoenix. I love that. I love how God's sovereignty over our lives is in no way threatened by the stupid decisions that we make. The dumbest things that we can think of that we think somehow, oh yeah, I'm in control of my life. I'm going to do this foolish, ridiculous thing. God is not threatened by your poor decisions. Uh, In this case, they took a chance and it landed them in a Northeaster. It landed them in a storm that was so bad, the Bible says that for 14 days and nights, they tossed around in the ocean or in the Mediterranean and could not see the sun or the stars for those 14 days, meaning the storm was so thick uh, overhead and around them. So when you make decisions in your life, that the result is you feel like your life is out of control. You, You go, okay, this has now put me in a horrific storm. God has not forgotten about you. God is not ignoring you. God is not somehow unable to rescue you from it. He can, he will, and the solution is always whatever storm you put yourself in is to run back to the God of the storm. Uh, The Bible says that the sailors and the soldiers gave up all hope of surviving. There's really only one guy on the boat who hasn't given up all hope of surviving. Now, Luke is with him uh, and another brother named Aristarchus. Maybe they were with Paul and that I'm going to trust God. But the other 273 guys on board gave up all hope of surviving. But God, period. There, there may be now or there will be situations in, in your life where this is the sentence that you need to remember, but God. Whatever you see in front of you, but God, but God's kindness, but God's mercy, but God's forgiveness. I've done this. I've made this poor decision. Such and such is happening to me. It is awful. It's out of control, but God, in his goodness and his sovereignty, and in this case, his divine intervention, but God. It's worth you asking the question, what are the storms in my life at present? Oftentimes, they are ones that you did not create. You you didn't take a chance. You didn't make a poor decision. Sickness. So many of us now are are facing sickness, or or maybe it was some sort of an accident that, that took place. Cancer. We have several brothers in our church that are actively fighting against cancer. I know many of you have lost loved ones this year and you find yourself in a storm for one reason or another. Maybe it's a lost job or it's uh, inflation is getting to me and I'm not sure how I'm going to pay all the bills. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Your kids are rebelling. Maybe you're single and you don't want to be single. Maybe you're married and you don't want to be married. I don't know what the storm may be. What about storms in your past that still affect your present? Moments where You were the victim. You didn't sin. You were sinned against. You were lied to. You were manipulated. You were used. And that past moment still affects you and and your family. Maybe there's storms that you did cause. Sins in your past. Sins in your your present. They they are your fault. You did sin. You did disobey. You, You did rebel. How do you face those storms in your life? How are you trying to survive them? What is your anchor, in other words, in the storm? I'll offer you a couple observations just from the text here. First of all, notice that Paul does not at any point in time go and grab the steering wheel of the ship. He doesn't know how to. It wouldn't have made any difference. 
it, it would have only fueled the delusion that he somehow had control. He makes no move for the steering wheel of the ship. What does he do? He prays. What should I do when my life is out of control? Pray. Call out to the God of the storm. What else does he do? He trusts God. He doesn't try to solve it. He just repeatedly declares publicly in his own heart, I trust God. The only thing I think at this moment that God had made clear to him that he chooses to continue to do is he continues to share the gospel. Can you imagine? He's sitting on a ship. The ship, to some degree or another, is going down, and he refuses to stop sharing the good news about Jesus with anybody who will listen. And I imagine that there were men on that ship who were listening to every word, and there were men who were like, stop talking to me about Jesus. But he didn't stop talking about Jesus. Um, Notice, too, Paul was never given the power to do a miracle here to, to calm the storm. Paul, by God's power, has been enabled throughout the book of Acts to do a variety of miracles, but he's never given the power to calm the storm. Only Jesus can calm the storm. All we need is Jesus. Uh, I think most people, to some degree or another, whether they use these words or not, believer or not, even if they have any sense of God, they rightly understand that God, by definition, is sovereign. He is in control. But the way that we usually express that or or sort of de facto admit it is by our anger and our bitterness and our fatalism towards God. God, why did you do it this way? Well, that angry statement in itself recognizes that God is in control. And here's the reality that we see yet again in this passage. God drove them into the storm and God will rescue them from the storm. And again, Paul here specifically is in a storm because he chose to faithfully follow Jesus. He's not giving up his commitment to obey God's call in his life. Even during the 14 days when everybody else said all hope is lost, Paul remained faithful. I think for many of us, God uses that sort of 14 days of being in the storm to get our attention. Maybe you are in the 14 days of storminess and you can't see the sun and the stars. Do not think little of that season of struggle. Oftentimes what God is doing is helping for you to see what are the functional saviors that when things go wrong, these are the things that I put my hope and my trust is. And while you're in the storm, he lovingly but firmly removes you from those things to remind you that the only savior that you ever have had or ever will have is me. Trust in me. When you face storms, remain anchored to God in faith. Let's pick up the the final section here of chapter 27. Now I'm going to read verse 21 to the end of the chapter, verse 44. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. I love that. You should have listened. It's your fault, guys. He doesn't do it. He just says, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, do not be afraid. Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. When the 14th night had come, 
as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. In fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Notice the the juxtaposition of total chaos in the storm and Paul's supreme confidence. We're going to take bread and we're going to give thanks. Verse 36, then they they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Number two, remain anchored to God in faith. Remain anchored anchored to God in faith. I love verse 25. Take heart, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. You knew I couldn't preach a two-point sermon. I want to give you four further points, and we'll call them one, two, three, four again. Four realities about God to give you faith in the storm. From this second half here, four realities about God that if you are in Christ, these are promises that you have. And if you are not in Christ, then make today the day that you accept those promises. Number one, God is your loving Father. We see this directly in verse 23. God is your loving Father. Paul says this, There stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. In this life, sin and Satan will knock you to the ground, and if you do not know who you are and whose you are, then you will fall apart. Who you are is defined by one thing, whose you are. My identity is in Christ alone. You and I, 
the Bible tells us, a, a number of facets of who we are, what our identity is. The Bible says, as Melinda just read to us, 1 John 3 and verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We are children of God. The Bible also tells us that you and I, we are the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You and I, we are the sheep of the great shepherd. An amazing story. Luke chapter 15, verse 4 and verse 7 says this. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. God is your loving Father. We are His children. We are His bride. We are His sheep. And you and I, we are His costly and valuable possession. We are his valued possession. Uh, we have approached 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as believers in this generation is optional. It is not. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, if you have no confidence about what is going to happen to you someday when you die, and if you want to know for certain that you can spend eternity with God in heaven, then understand that this is the reality that God has invited you into you, that God the Father sent His one and only Son to you at great price. He sent Jesus to live the perfect life with no sin and then willingly went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and to buy back, to ransom your life. On the cross, Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sins. And when you trust him in faith, your debt can be paid, your life can be saved, and you can be given a new identity, one that will never spoil or fade. You are a child of the Father. You are a beloved bride of Christ. You are his valued possession. You are that one sheep that he will go and find. God is your loving father. Secondly, God is near. As we face the storms of life, like Paul faces the storms of life, we are reminded, secondly, that God is near. This also comes from verse 23. If we were to read verse 23 in the NIV, it would say this, an angel of God came and stood beside me. An angel of God came and stood beside me. See, Paul knew, and his faith was emboldened. He knew that God was personally with him. One of my favorite days in, in seminary was learning these two words that helped describe and define among the many facets of who God is and his character uh, were these two words, that God is uh, both transcendent and imminent. These were new words to me at the time. Transcendent, God is the God who creates and governs the universe. You know what I have not spent a whole lot of time recently stressing about? Is the planet Neptune correctly spinning on its axis? I haven't spent a lot of time on that one. You know why? Because God is transcendent. He is taking care of Neptune. 
I don't have to worry about Neptune because God is in complete and utter control of all things. He's transcendent, but he's also imminent, which means not only is God dealing with Neptune, but he is close. He is personal. So much so here that we are told that, that even the hairs on these guys' heads are not going to be lost. This would make the perfect Rogaine commercial, wouldn't it? All these middle-aged men out to sea, and Paul says, guys, do not worry. When we jump in the water, not a single one of your hairs on your head will be lost. It's a promise. Luke picks up this same thread, by the way. Luke chapter 12 and verse 7, he says, God knows the very hairs on your head. God is transcendent, but he is imminent. He is close. He is personal. So when you are not feeling close to him, it's not that God left. It's that we so easily can wander from him. And God is not one to hold a grudge. He's saying, I'm here. I love you. Come to me. Acts chapter 18, 9 and 10. Do not be afraid to speak about me. I am with you. Hebrews 13, 5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Matthew 28 and verse 20. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Thirdly, God called you with a purpose. God is your loving father. God is near and God called you with a purpose. Shocker, we see this also in verse 23. Same sentence. An angel of the God whose I am and whom I worship. It says in the ESV translation. If we were to read the NIV, it would say whom I serve. Paul knew his purpose and his calling was to worship and serve the Lord. 20 years earlier, in Acts chapter 9, Paul was knocked off of a donkey by a blinding light, and the voice of Jesus spoke to him and said, among other things, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name. Paul wasn't even a believer yet. God had a purpose for his life. Two years earlier than this event here, the shipwreck, Acts 23 and verse 11, Jesus stood by Paul. Jesus stood by Paul in a prison cell in Caesarea and says this, take courage for as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must testify about me in Rome. As God does not promise smooth sailing, he promises that his purposes in your life will be fulfilled. You understand that? He promises that his chosen people will not fail. If God has work for you to do, then he will preserve you to do it for your good, for his glory, until the very moment that he has decided to call you home, to be with him in heaven for forever. 2 Timothy chapter 4, 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight, writes Paul. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My father-in-law's father finished his race last Wednesday. I want to read a little bit of his eulogy to you. It says, Reverend Anthony Foti, age 94, of Hayden Township, New Jersey, passed away at his home on May 11th, 2022. He is the beloved husband of 70 years of Jean, devoted father of Dominic Sr., Anthony Sr., Anita, and Andrew, 
loving grandfather of Gina, Alana, Dominic Jr., Adriana, Anthony Jr., Simeon, Mia, Dominique, Stevie, Michaela, Micah, and Hugo, cherished great-grandfather of 19. Born and raised in Niagara Falls, New York, Reverend Fody served as a minister for the Assemblies of God for a total of 45 years, three years in Buffalo, New York, seven years in Shelton, Connecticut, six years in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, and 29 years as a missionary in Australia. He is fondly remembered for his quiet and caring spirit, always having a kind word and generous response to anyone in need. God called you with a purpose, and he will carry you to the day of completion. And the day that you close your eyes in death, believer, you will open them immediately to see Jesus face to face. I don't know what storm you're facing, but it's temporary. Trust him. God is a good and loving father. He is near. He has called you with a purpose. Fourth and finally, God sovereignly works all things for your good. God sovereignly works all things for your good. We see this in verses 21 through 26 multiple times and the very last verse, the punchline in verse 44. Here, Romans chapter 8, often quoted, often doubted, Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul says in Acts 27 to the ship full of people with the storm raging and the ship is breaking apart, there will be no loss of life. And the ship must run aground. Bad things are going to happen, y'all, but God is going to use them. God is sovereign over this situation. Our comfort is in a God who already knows our beginning from our end. You don't have to be in control. If you think you're in control, I have good and bad news for you. You're not. God is. Trust in him. Ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Join his forever family. See, the idea here is I trust God, even though everything that my eyes can see says that I won't survive. Faith is saying God's promises to me are more certain than what I can see in front of me. My 2020 vision is incomplete. And here at the end of the passage, 276 souls feeling hopeless, 276 souls saved. Now, I'm, I'm not a statistician. That's a pretty good stat line though, isn't it? Any sport I might be playing, if I went 276 for 276, you'd think I had a pretty good day. God is in control. And this happened according to God's sovereign goodness and promises. God used it for the believer's good. He used it for his glory. The Bible does not tell us one way or the other, but I can imagine that one or two guys that day gave their lives to Jesus. When the biggest storm that they had ever seen made them go, I'm not in control. I need to tether my life to the one who is in control. I know I've done bad things. You notice what scoundrels the, the sailors are. As soon as the storm gets bad, they're like, we're out. 
You notice what scoundrels the soldiers are, that they're like, oh, we're not going to deal with this. We'll just kill everybody. But even that can be forgiven. Whatever sins you think that you have that God cannot forgive, you are wrong. Jesus would love to forgive you of those sins. And all you have to do is ask, and Jesus will do the rest. Trust in God in the midst of the storms of your life. Stay anchored to God in faith. Amen? Let's pray to that very same God right now.